We have a new CEO. For those of us at the Canadian Psychological Association, this is not a major change, as Dr. Lisa Vodableeker has been our deputy CEO for some time, and we know her well, and we like her. But she is a fairly new face and voice for the profession and discipline of psychology in Canada, so we thought we'd take this opportunity to introduce Dr. Vodableeker to a larger audience. My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the CPA, and this is Mindful. Lisa comes to the position of CEO of the Canadian Psychological Association from a different perspective than our previous CEO. Dr. Karen Cohen, who retired recently as you may have heard on this podcast, was a practitioner, meaning she was the kind of psychologist who would help clients deal with mental health issues like anxiety or depression. Lisa comes to us from the scientific side of things, the research into human behavior that informs most every aspect of our lives. She has big shoes to fill, and we at the CPA head office look forward to undertaking that journey with her. Let's meet our new CEO. I'm Lisa Vodableeker, and I'm the CPA's CEO. Terrific. And this is a brand new role for you. How different is it from being the deputy CEO? I feel like there's, uh, for almost anybody, uh, an enormous jump in responsibilities, but at the same time, you were as close to having all those responsibilities as anybody prior to this, like the most qualified person we could imagine. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. And first and foremost, I'm honored to have been selected for the role. It is a job. It is, you know, you would think that as having been an internal, an internal staff person that it, that it is easy. But it's realistically, it's not. I mean, staff are looking to you for leadership. External folks are looking to you for a different perspective. You have an overall responsibility for for the association and a different accountability to the board. Whereas in the deputy role, you, your accountability was to the CEO. Now your accountability as the sole employee of the board is to them. So you really you bring up an overall strategic, high level look while also trying to bring a bit of an empowerment to the staff, uh, a fulfillment to the strategic plan. So it is, it's a very different. I had a very, had a very heavy operational component to my role as the deputy as well. So right now it's addressing some different staffing needs that need to be addressed so that those operations don't get not covered, but they're covered appropriately by relevant staff so that as I say, I can be responsible to the association and to the board from a from a governance, from a strategic perspective and look at things that way. So it's been, what, like two weeks uh, <laughs> since you uh, became CEO? Have you been inundated with uh, a number of emails from people that surprised you? Like, now we need you to deal with this. Uh, have, have there been any surprises so far? Uh, no surprises so far. I will say I have been inundated with emails from the members and from colleagues from, you know, just across the country and, and even the U.S. Uh, congratulating me. So it has been extremely heartwarming to know that I've been so well received in this role and that, you know, I, I'm looking forward to working with all of them in those in those capacities. But no, there there haven't been surprises yet. So. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> so in that uh, vein, then, what do you think is the number one challenge that you're going to face immediately as essentially the new face of psychology in Canada, the person who is running the national organization? What's the biggest challenge in the immediate next few months, weeks, years? 
So the immediate is figuring out from an organizational perspective the and the staffing that needs to be addressed. So we lost an incredible amount of knowledge and expertise with Karen's departure as 15 years in that role. She had a lot of relationships. She sat on a lot of committees. She just, her, her footprint all over psychology is extremely significant. So you can't fill those fill those shoes that way. Um, so there's an embarking on your own relationship building that that has to happen. So and that takes time. You know, even in my role as as in this new role, even though the staff know me, for example, there's a new role. Um, I you know I bring a new lens to things. So there's even a, a new relationship building that needs to happen with the staff in this role. But it really is filling filling the staffing gaps, determining what does the association need to to keep moving forward through its next chapter to continue the great work that it's been doing. As I move into the CEO role, I obviously vacated a lot of portfolios that I was overseeing. Of course, they're not vacated right now. A few of us are all taking those those on amongst us so that no, no balls get dropped. But that's not sustainable, obviously. So, you know, we need to bring in some some staffing. So right now it's it's taking the time necessary to figure out what is the appropriate staffing model that is needed to to keep the CPA doing this incredible work. I think one of the staff positions we really need is like the party planner, you know? <laughs> Isn't like, that you? I, no, like, I, I'm not great at that. You know, like I can send emails and stuff. What we really need is a guy to show up with like uh, a belt full of beers that he can, you know, throw like Duffman. I'm picturing, uh, okay. the Simpsons, I, you know, I, <laughs> gotcha. he's right in the office. Well, I, I will leave that to you guys as staff to put together a little <laughs> social planning committee and you guys can figure out what we need. Just, you know, tell me where to be and when. <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> Now, I'm wondering, you're moving on from the deputy CEO role where I I would send you emails about building issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the bathrooms need to be dealt with and uh, you're going to talk to the building management company and all that. Is that the part of that job that you're most happy to leave behind? I'm just imagining that it would be. Yeah, I, I'm not going to miss those kind of emails, Eric. <laughs> so there's a, there's a few other staff in the office now that once we've got everything all sorted out, we'll be the, the joyful recipients of those emails now. <laughs> and when I spoke to Karen in the last few days before she retired, we talked a little bit about what had been accomplished in her 15 years as the CEO and uh, some of the highlights. You know, uh, we pushed hard for marriage equality and things of that nature. Uh, And I think a lot has been done to raise the profile of psychology in the last 15 years to sort of integrate psychologists into public health discussions, that sort of thing. Where do you think we need to go next from there? Like, what are some of the big issues that we can tackle? I say we as a profession, although I am not a psychologist myself, of course, but the profession itself, what are some of the areas where going forward, we can really uh, have a larger voice? Obviously, there's continued work needs to happen on some of those areas that you that you said. That work can't stop. There's quite a few on the on the radar right now, and a lot of them really fall again right out of our strategic plan. So, the, there's a health human resource issue when you when you look at need, supply, and demand here in Canada, and and likely in in other countries as well. In terms of are we training enough psychologists to meet the need and Arguably, from what we're hearing, the answer is no. There's a lot of difficulties in terms of recruiting psychologists to fill vacancies in the public sector in various sectors within the public sector. So whether you're looking at corrections, whether you're looking at schools, whether you're looking at hospitals. So 
there's that issue that that needs to be addressed. You know, the, the the coverage of psychological services, the access to psychological services, is a big issue that that needs to be addressed. For me, as a you know, as a psychological scientist, it's really continuing that push for decision makers, government program deliverers, whatnot, to understand the role of psychological science, the contribution that it can make to helping understand any sort of issue that that we're facing. I mean, I, I think as you might have heard me say before, any decision maker can ask us a question and why is this happening? And undoubtedly, when you look amongst the breadth and depth that is our, our discipline and our profession, there's somebody that can answer that question. But I, I don't think at times people think I'm going to go to the CPA to get my answer. So it, it is that helping the funders understand the continued research dollars that are needed for psychological research. There's that. And then I'd be remiss not to say, not to speak to all of the the gaps that are around in terms of equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging. Psychology needs to continue addressing that along with our continued response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. So there's there's quite a few, you know, and then you can't lose sight of the fact that CPA is a member-driven organization. So continuing to ensure that we're meeting meeting the needs of our members, you know, the value proposition is what they need. So there's, there's quite a few, quite a few scopes to that. Yeah, there definitely are. There's a lot to, uh, a lot to take in there and a lot to do. Over the years as the deputy CEO, your portfolio has been essentially science, the science side of psychology. And you've helped open some funding envelopes and that sort of thing for psychologists, scientists who are doing that sort of work. And I'm hoping that you can sort of tease out the difference between clinical practice and science in psychology for the people who are uh, not super familiar with this with this sort of dichotomy that they are not necessarily the same thing but they're very connected right the psychologist who has somebody come in and help somebody with you know marital issues or um, a mental health issue of that something of that nature and then the people who do the work and the research to study how best to go about delivering that service, among other things. So, so you actually you actually said it, and I'm glad you said it because it's how I was going to start. Is there's an interconnectedness there? I think oftentimes one thinks of them in in silos that practice sits in one bucket and science sits in another, and that's not the case. I mean. There, there are absolutely our psychological scientists who do not engage in, in clinical or health services research. Our language folks, our social and personality, our brain and cognitive science, but that's not to say there's not an application at times to what they're doing in the clinical and health services spheres. But even when you're looking at our clinical and our health services work and our just our, our professional practitioners, they are grounded in science. They are grounded in evidence. It's why you know, years ago, we developed a working group report, a task force report that was evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. So when a person goes to see a psychologist for assistance with any sort of issue that they're having, the treatment that they're receiving, the intervention that they're receiving is grounded in science. So first and foremost, we can't lose that. So I think that's one of the things I've loved about overseeing science is being able to, to cross-cut those, those pillars and, and those silos. So there is an evidence, a science that informs practice, but absolutely when you, you as, a, as a member of the public, for example, if you're going in, you want to know that you've got someone that can help deal with your, your issue, but know that their training, is, is, as, as I say, is grounded in science. But then there is the science part which has its own significant, significant contribution. And the science part, uh, for the most part, is delivered by academic researchers at uh, academic institutions. And that forms a large part of the CPA's membership. 
And you mentioned earlier the worry that we have that there aren't enough psychologists to meet the demand from the public in a clinical sense, where in public health institutions, there are, you know, we're trying to fill those gaps and there just aren't enough people coming in at the moment. Is the same thing true on the research side? Do we have a gap there or is that side more solidly entrenched, I guess? Do we have enough people on that side as well? That was a question of whether we have enough people. And, and I will say, while a, a great deal of research, especially federally funded research from our tri-councils happens in academia, uh, we can't lose sight of the fact that there's a great deal of research that happens outside of outside of academic institutions. So, for example, we've got psychologists that work at the National Research Council. So there's there's psychologists that are doing research within Health Canada, the public health agency. They're they're all over the place doing doing this research. You wouldn't just necessarily know that they're out there as psychologists, right? Because they're employed by their employer and they're and they're doing that work. We certainly have issues in the academic setting in terms of you know tenure track contract positions and that's something that isn't just unique to psychology. A lot of the the various learned societies disciplines are grappling with that issue in terms of um, finding tenure track positions. But the research can happen. The research is happening in a in a great in a great many places. What there's a lack of is arguably the the federal research dollars for the research. So you know, as part of the Canadian Consortium for Research, we've long been arguing for increased funding to the to the base budgets of the tri councils to be able to continue to do that research so it's not so much a lack of the people to do it it's a it's an insufficient amount of dollars to do the necessary research so we're going to try to get more dollars is that what i'm understanding here <laughs> well it's it's something we've been pushing for my whole time at cpa and we'll continue to do it until that message is heard for sure i'm hoping that you can just walk me through the process right from let's say let's give an example i get some money to do research i'm going to research a certain thing i discover that here's a slightly better way to treat people who have post-traumatic stress disorder and then that ends up being the way down the line that psychologists start to treat people uh, that they incorporate that into their practice i'm hoping you can sort of take me through that whole process uh, to integrate it all so yeah, you apply for you, you apply for research dollars. I mean, typically as a you're you're based somewhere, whether it be in a hospital or an academic institution, you apply for federal research dollars. There's a there's a question you want to answer, a, an issue you want to address. You get those research dollars, and then you've got to design your study. Now, usually that goes hand in hand. You you design your study, and that's part of how you're requesting those dollars. It gets reviewed, and people will say. You know, there's peer reviewers that say, yes, the way you've designed that study, the question you're trying to answer is worthy of these dollars. Then you go out and you get your folks to participate in this research and you you evaluate it and you see if your if your your findings that you guessed were going to happen, that you hypothesized were going to happen, happen. And then usually there's a there's a lot of repetition that will come. So you want to make sure that just having done a study once that the results hold. So people will say, well, we're going to do it with a slightly different target group, a different group of participants in our in our research, so that you ensure that the if you're talking about a clinical intervention, that that intervention works the way it's intended to with all groups of people. It might be that something is more effective solely with adolescents, for example, but perhaps not with our older adults or perhaps not with children. So you you got to figure out the effectiveness of the of the research. And then you you 
you really just that repetition comes with it until more and more people start using it. And then it becomes part of a, of a, a, a clinical practice. I mean, you'll, then you hear about it at conferences and you read about it in other journal articles and it just, as it, as it, as it starts to be used by other, other providers is when it becomes embedded in clinical practice. I imagine that there are several people in clinical practice who then sort of send research back or results back. Once a new intervention has been identified, people start using it, then they can measure how effective it is uh, from the clinical end as well. So does it kind of go the other way also? Absolutely. There's a lot of you know, we call that knowledge mobilization, knowledge translation, knowledge transfer. Um, it, it, that's going that going back and forth, right? So anyone, for example, who does cognitive behavioral therapy, they're very connected, a very connected group. Um, so there, there's a constant sharing of, of research, whether it be a publication, whether it be a conference presentation, could be presentations as part of hospital rounds. Obviously, have post COVID, there's a lot of virtual webinars on on things. So, absolutely, there's that sharing amongst that that subject matter expertise group that are that are doing that work. All right, I have a very specific question for you because I know that you're a big fan of the NSYNC Backstreet Boys uh, boy bands of the '90s, and you I, can't be NSYNC and Backstreet Boys at the same time. It's one what or it the can? other. Is it one? <laughs> Or the no, other one or the other <laughs> i can't even tell them apart i don't know oh yes you can <laughs> I, I know i'm in it. the backstreet boys camp <laughs> okay all right no 98 degrees either then we're no, uh it's just no. solely backstreet boys yeah okay <laughs> maybe maybe some new kids on the block eric <laughs> 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 yes, I do remember the new kids on the block. I can identify their songs, I think, a little bit better. Uh, my wife is very excited at the idea that uh, new kids on the block is uh, making an appearance on the CPA podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> I just ran across a uh, class that's now being offered at an American university, and I can't remember which university now, but they are offering a course called The Psychology of Taylor Swift. Okay. So that is going to involve, you know, a lot of her lyrics and the messages that she puts out, as well as, you know, (laughs) there's a component about relationship dissatisfaction. Uh, Taylor Swift being famously uh, uh, writes songs about relationships, also the psychology of music. When you were going through school, is that the kind of thing that you would have gravitated toward? Would you have been like, yes, I want to learn the psychology of Taylor Swift? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Uh, I, I mean, had you told me there was a psychology of BSB, maybe, but, you know, <laughs> uh, probably not. <laughs> One day, well, I, we may have missed the bus on the psychology of A.J. McLean, I, perhaps, but... <laughs> oh, hey, he, <laughs> we, yeah, we won't go there, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, he's to be commended for what he's done in terms of... Uh, being so open about his addictions issues and you know it resonates with a lot of people who who um who look up to those you know whether it be a whether it be actors whether it be musicians whatnot when when a celebrity figure can come out and say yeah i have an addiction and here's the steps i took to deal with it and and then you know can can put their life back and still remain successful you know be be a husband, father, whatnot, uh, you know, it, it, that, that sparks hope in people at a point where there's a bit of darkness in front of them. So. For sure. And that, that's really something that I think we, 
I, I sometimes don't think we understand the impact that that can have when celebrities come out one way or the other, when they say something that isn't true, how many people will believe that and follow that when they say something that is, and when they share their own personal story, how impactful that can be. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. For the sure. power, the power of celebrity for the positive and for the negative, you know, you, you really have to encourage the public to try and source through, you know, what, what is, what is the fake and what is the real and, and, you know, from a science perspective, many of us know how to do it. And unfortunately, from a public perspective, especially in, you know, when you're trying to get your information in sound bites or tweets or TikTok videos or whatever it might be, that's what you determine is, okay, if it's there, it must be true. And it's not always. So just because you hear it once, and depending on who the deliverer is, you, you really have to encourage people to make sure that their their information source is valid and it is the correct one and, and don't just rely on that one source. Is that why you're not on Twitter? No, I, so I follow Twitter a lot. I have I have quite a few, um, you know, there are quite a few. I have authors and, and you know, various teams, sports teams that I follow and things like that. But I, I just don't, I just don't tweet out myself. So I just never, I don't know, maybe it's that one step that I've got to do at once, but I've just never, <laughs> I've never done it. So... <laughs> Well, now may not be the time to start. If you're going to yeah. start, uh, maybe threads. We we have moved over to threads as well at the CPA, so that's that's the new thing. It may well take over from Twitter, or it may fizzle out like Mastodon and all the other, uh, you know. Well, you're going to have to do a lunch and learn on threads because, see, I didn't even know that existed now. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. That will be the that will be the next lunch and learn. There you go. You follow sports teams on Twitter. I know you're a Giants Senators fan. You know, now that you're in this new position, we talk a lot about work life balance. How many games are you going to get out to this coming year? Oh, I'm a half season ticket holder, so I will I will go to I will go to all of mine and maybe a few more. So, I it's it's an it's a really important part of you know, our family and source of source of fun for us. So it's, you know, people choose to, to take their entertainment in certain ways. And for my family, it's attending hockey games and we absolutely love it. So I will, I will go to many, I'll move my, my games around if my schedule requires it, but I, I won't skip out on my 20 plus. (laughs) (laughs) And I do appreciate that you're a fan through thick and thin it being very thin these last few years. Uh, how long before the Senators can turn it around and become an actual playoff contender again? Oh, they're close. They're so close. They were only six points out of the playoffs this past year, right? So once you're in, anything happens. No, I, I, I do believe they're close. I think this is they're an exciting group, an exciting group to watch. I have, I've, I've, I, I was at many of those playoff games and their runs in 2007 and whatnot and it, it was it, they were they were exciting so i know i'm certainly excited to see that come back to the city of ottawa again that would be great i i didn't get to attend any of the actual playoff games but i would go down to elgin street uh during the finals right and here yeah. in ottawa we had just the whole street was a party during yeah. every one of those games uh in the semifinals, even and then in the finals yeah so that atmosphere i would be very yeah. excited to welcome yeah. back to ottawa I would I would call my I think it was my brother actually at the time I would call him and let him hear what the arena sounded like during during some of those games it was it was rocking in there so if if you've never if you're a Sens fan and you've never had the chance to experience that it is it is amazing so 
you know, the the most recent run where they came close and lost in that double overtime I'm, like, to Pittsburgh. I'm not sure I've recovered from that one. So we yeah. need a win to erase that memory. But yeah, no, they're 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 close. All right. Well, fingers crossed. Uh, our convention next year is in Ottawa. It'll be after the playoffs end, though. So even were Ottawa to make the finals, we're not doing it uh, at the same time. Would you consider moving the convention up a little so that our delegates could experience this? Should <laughs> Ottawa make it to the finals next year? Oh, Eric, I'm not sure I have that kind of power when it comes to hotel <laughs> contracts. <laughs> but but I'll tell you, if, the, if there ever was an opportunity to come and watch an NHL game, uh, you certainly encourage the delegates to do it, no matter where they are. It's, it's you know, it, it's a pretty amazing experience. And for those of us that live in Ottawa and, and have the privilege of having a team here, it's pretty amazing, especially for all that they do for the for the community and to, to bring hockey to you know, to all sorts of, of kids and groups and whatnot. So I know my, my kids have been part of their programs for years. So I think that's also one of the areas where we don't think a lot about psychology playing a big part, but sports now is so integrated with psychology in so many ways. Every team has a psychologist on staff. Every team is really concerned about the mental state of their players and that sort of thing. Is this just going to grow? I mean, psychology is sort of everywhere now. Are we going to be able to uh, let people know just where it is in every facet of your everyday life? Well, I, I mean, I certainly hope so. And absolutely, from a sports psychology perspective, I and mean, we've got amazing members in our in our association that are doing incredible work on this front. And, you know, there's opportunities to collaborate with other associations, societies who are, who are doing this work and other folks and other disciplines that, that connect, right? So the sports psychologists, the physiotherapists, the kinesiologists, they're all, they're all so connected when it, when it comes to sports. So I think there's absolutely opportunities to do that. But I guess it goes back to what I started at the beginning in terms of you don't necessarily always think psychology when you think certain issues. So I think that's where CPA has a has a great opportunity ahead of it to say, did you know that, you know, psychology has this answer to that specific question? Or, you know, as the Olympics come around and you start hearing about the, the training that goes in the sport, I mean, there's opportunities for us to be able to to show that contribution that, that we make all around, right? As a whether as a fan, whether as an athlete, whether as the coaching staff, there's it's huge, right? And the, the mental preparedness that goes into taking on being a, a high-level competitive athlete is, is, is quite something. So I think the opportunities for us to show our breadth and depth of psychology is massive. It's just a question of how much can you take on and how do you how do you make it known? And you mentioned that you know uh, the interdisciplinary team that would you know works with athletes, physiotherapists, and kinesiologists and psychologists all working together. And interdisciplinary seems to be one of the big buzzwords that we have uh, around the CPA and around psychology in general. Very often, people are integrating into other with other specialties in order to come up with a result. And I know that you've sat on a few boards like that yourself. Just hoping you can tell me a little bit about uh, some of the places where we are doing that and that you've directly been experienced with in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, not something I can take a lot of credit for, but so many of our members are doing amazing work when it comes to integrated care. I had the opportunity when I first graduated to be part of a CIHR fellowship that was around 
um, transdisciplinary primary care. So you did bring all the various disciplines together because when you were dealing with any sort of health issue, you can't deal with it in isolation, right? So whether it be a, a chronic issue, a chronic illness, whether it be pain, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with a with a disease. There's so many people that go into helping an individual, helping a family come through an issue that the more integrated you can be, the better. I mean, I, I worked in years of injury prevention and it was, you'd think, what does psychology have to do with injury prevention? Well, it's the, it's the choices you make in terms of, of being smart in your behaviors and the risk that you're, you know, you're putting yourself into. You hear people say, oh, that's such a dangerous highway. Well, the highway is dangerous. The highway doesn't move. The highway is just there. What makes it dangerous is the people that are driving on it and the way they're driving on it, the weather conditions, the, the night conditions. Those are the kind of things that make something dangerous. So it's all about your, it's all about your choices that you're, that you're making. So that's where psychology is part of, of recovery from anything or treatment or interventions has a has a huge contribution to make. Many years ago, I attended Blues Fest here in Ottawa, and it was on City Hall grounds at that time. And we were there for the Allman Brothers, and I was very excited to see them. And I tried to climb a giant statue so that I could see them uh, from back in the crowd. And then I fell off, and my shoulder hasn't been the same since for the last 20 years. What sort of intervention would you have given me in advance to convince me not to climb up on that statue? Well, again, right? It's that it's 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 the same thing you apply to kids, you apply it to teens, you kind of look at it and go, really? You know, think of how much is going to hurt. Think of, you know, the, the true ramifications of all that could happen if you actually fall. Does it make that view worth it? And some people are going to say, yeah. You know what? When they do a risk analysis, they're going to say, I'm okay to go up there. I'm not going to fall. And then when they do, it's like, oh, shoot, I should have. I, I probably <laughs> should have made a different decision. So you hope it's an injury and nothing more serious that you can't learn from it and change your behavior in the future. But again, you know, even look at something like climate change, right? Whether you choose to recycle or not, whether you choose to walk or drive, whether, you know, they're all choices that we're making in terms of how we interact with our, our environment, the things around us, how we, how we recover from things, the choices we make. It's, it's, all, it's all human behavior about how we think, act and feel. You mentioned the highway example, right? That the highway is not in and of itself intrinsically dangerous. It's the way people behave on it. And I've talked to quite a few environmental psychologists who do interesting things, right? And I don't think people realize when you're driving around my neighborhood, there's a little sign of a little kid playing on the side of the road. And it freaks me out every time. I know it's there, but it's been, you know, four years I've driven by this like cardboard yeah. cutout of a kid playing. But it makes you stop for a second and slow down and think that there's actually a kid there. That's a psych psychological thing or those little yeah. signs that look like they've narrowed the road, but haven't actually narrowed the road that convinced you to slow down as you go exactly. through there exactly well even you know if you see a sign that there's a red light camera you, you probably stop right or if you've been you know you slow down or if you've received a ticket in a certain area my guess is you don't speed in that the same way in that area i i know i've been in that situation there's <laughs> one street in the city of ottawa that i don't go over 50 anymore so <laughs> you know it's uh it's it's all the impacts on you know past experiences you know can predict how you're gonna how you're gonna behave in future experiences and situations 
So how have your past experiences as the deputy CEO at the CPA informed how you will behave as the CEO going forward? Like what, what are your immediate plans? Oh, you're bringing me full circle. I mean, yep. like I say, I think for me, it really is, it is relationship building. There isn't a wheel we have to recreate here. The, the CPA under the leadership that we've had for, for, for so many years um, has done some great work. So it's just, it's continuing that work. It's taking the next steps. It's, um, for some of these, we've just scratched the surface. So now it's, it's, it's moving deeper into addressing some of these issues. Um, so it's, for me, it's relationship building, it's collaboration, it's partnerships. It's, it's being able to offer that, that leadership to the staff that they need to feel that they can go ahead and be the be the heads of their departments and and whatnot and know that they've got a plan that's been approved by the board and what they have to deliver on and supporting them in, in whatever way I can. But on the on the broader level, um, as I say, on the external side is is really just seeking those opportunities to to build relationship, build collaboration, so that at the end of the day, our our contribution to psychology is going to be stronger if we're if we're doing it together. You know, if we're trying, if the ultimate goal, and you know, when you look at so many of our associations, the ultimate goal is to improve the health and well-being of Canadians. And as long as we keep that in mind, and you know, we can find those opportunities to to work together, I think we can make we can continue to to make some significant impact. Terrific. Well, let's continue to do that. And, you know, as somebody who now feels the autonomy to uh, be able to conduct things the way I will, I'm ending this interview. Uh. <laughs> Very good, Eric. Well, you, you'll have lots to do uh, in terms of, you know, all of these areas that we've talked about in terms of showing psychology's contribution. So you'll, you'll be busy. On that note, I am off to be busy. Thanks to Dr. Lisa Vodableeker for taking the time to introduce herself to all of us and to you at home for streaming, downloading, and listening to this episode. Now, one thing I noticed that I just could not help but point out. For those of you who don't work with psychologists all day, it may have just slipped by, but Lisa, being such a fan of the Backstreet Boys, refers to them by an acronym, BSB. This is very on brand. If there is one thing I can be sure of in my day-to-day -day work, it is that I will have to learn at least one whole new acronym by the end of each workday. I have founded an organization of my own, Adults Against Additional Acronym Aggravation, or AAAAA, if you will, A5, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. For the CPA, Mindful is written, produced, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. 